This is the Faraway Farm Boy podcast, episode number 29. My guest today is a farmer from Rocky Mountain House, Alberta. He's knowledgeable, articulated, and well-spoken. Please welcome Devin Similink. Devin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for uh, coming on. Yeah, no problem. Um, tell our listeners a bit about your farm and uh, give them a picture of what it's like here. All right, I guess so. Uh, we're farming just north of Rocky Mountain House here, uh, milking 95 to 100 cows. Uh, Grandpa started the farm in 1960, so I'm third generation on the farm. Um, we grow most of our own forages, um, buy in our grain, and raise all our own replacements. That's a quick and dirty summary of it. And uh, what's the landscape like? A lot of trees, grass right up against the mountains. Um, a lot of snow, like we're, we're around, I think we're saying 85 frost-free days and 1,400 heat units. So it's a different environment, but you just grow different stuff and it works out all right. What's the, uh, what, what kind of crops do you guys grow? So we're running mostly uh, oat silage for our cereal silage, and then we run a grass alfalfa mix, um, and then some straight grass hay. So a mix of uh, silage bales, dry hay, and then chopped silage. Now it's oat, oat silage. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been growing oat silage for about seven years now. I know we were barley before that, but we just switched to the oats because of, we got a bigger harvest window. We found with the barley sometimes we weren't uh, weren't mm. quite getting it off either too early or too late. Where the oats you kind of got about ten days um, when it's kind of mature, so you got a bit of a bigger harvest window with the kind of all the the moisture we get. We were a little more likely to get it off at optimal timing than the the barley. Really. Yeah. Huh. And what kind of um, production, what's your production like on the farm? Well, so right now we're down a little bit. Uh, had mm-hmm. some, some really wet feed we couldn't get to last year. So right now we're running about 33 litres at 4.2. Uh, yeah. um, we were at 4.5, but we just dropped, switching into some feed. But the litres are starting to climb now. There's just a bit of a lag. So yeah. usually I try and target kind of 1.5 to 1.6 kgs per cow, Yeah. Um, which we're not there now, but usually that's kind of the ballpark we're sitting in yeah and you were showing me some of your um wagyu crosses so you breed your lower end you were saying to wagyu yeah we started just breeding a few now like we were breeding angus before but i just wanted to see if they were as tasty as they were hyped up to be but i didn't want to actually pay for them (laughs) so i figured i'd raise them but you know it's been a couple years in the making and we're still over a year away from harvesting the first one so (laughs) hopefully it's worth it because otherwise Mm -hmm. you got four years into yeah it's not like they look any different on the outside, really. I I thought for some reason that a Wagyu cross would look different, but... No, they look a lot like an Angus cross. Yeah. Like, if yeah. you didn't know, like, once you start looking, if you put them side by side, you can see a few small differences, but for the most part, they're pretty pretty similar. So, like, so that's kind of a new yeah. experiment. And that's, like, your lower 10%, or what would you say? Yeah, somewhere in there. Like, uh, like so I was telling you earlier, we were running kind of 65 70% bull calves for a lot of years, so... Uh, now, now we're. How is that up. possible? What do you mean, like? Just somehow naturally, we were not having heifer calves. <laughs> so now, now we're doing better. So I might start bumping it up to the, the bottom twenty-five or, or percent or third huh. with more heifers coming up again. And yeah. once we kind of get that back to to normal, but we ran about five years where we ran kind of 70 percent bull calves. Somehow. Oh man. So that's frustrating. Yeah. 
Because so. I've been there when you need you need milk and like yeah. it's like oh another bull so. calf yay yeah. so no it's uh. doing good now in the last couple of years have been been doing good but if you have that long of a stretch you spend some years keeping stuff you shouldn't be milking just because yeah. you don't have the replacements and and it's just like yeah. an effect that goes on down the road yeah. so we're, we're just coming out of that now so I might bump it up to a higher percentage going to, to either Wagyu or Angus yeah so yeah it's like yeah more guys are doing the um you know, sex to most of their herd or, you know, stuff like that. It's like to keep, just, just to be able to keep those good genetics around. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, what's the, uh, ownership structure like on your farm? I know your parents are here and obviously you're third generation and yeah. So right now, most of it's still owned by my parents. Like I, I am an ownership and, uh, we just set it up where I got a couple percent coming in and then I get a percentage of the growth going forward. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then uh, once my dad retires, then I'll just start buying him out. So instead of okay, he'll just keep getting paid, and we'll just set up a a payment plan once he's not working anymore. And then I'll start buying his shares out. So right now I yeah. get a percentage of the the growth going forward, and then we'll figure it out at the end, kind of what percentage is still his, and I'll just start buying it off of him instead of paying a wage when he retires. I'll just start buying his shares out. Right. So. Huh. Yeah. Because there's a a lot of folks in in your position that you know, are ready to take over the family farm and there's a few different ways to do it. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did deal with a succession planner and we went through okay. some of that and, um, that, that was, I don't know, sometimes I think it was worthwhile. Sometimes I think we kind of, we're a fairly open family and it does cause some fights, but we kind of had everything figured out. So when we kind of got the bill, we're like, you just put on paper what we told you, but yeah, there, I, there's definitely yeah. like some of the transition and putting the accounting side of things in place were definitely worthwhile. Yeah. For sure. Um, so I think it's still a good thing to do. And to formalize that plan, right? Yeah, like, right. Because we have this too. We, you know, me and my uh, parents, we know, talk back and forth and we kind of have this plan, yeah. you know, and then you know, it's always good to get it down on paper though, yeah. just for the communication. Right, right. And, yeah. Yeah. And like, I do have three siblings that aren't on the farm. So it's one of those, right. you know, Tough. what's fair is not equal and what's equal is not fair. Yeah. So... Yeah. figuring out how you know they still get something and the farm can still go forward as a as an operation right so yeah we, we involve them in all that all those conversations as well and um yeah so no it was it was a process but it, it was worthwhile and um I, I mean i got pretty lucky dad kind of when i got home said you know i i built my farm you need to build yours and i got quite a bit of control right away which was was nice over you know some of the genetics and feedings i mean Right. I'm still kind of stubborn sometimes, and when I tell him he's stubborn, he tries to get me to fire him and start paying him out, but nobody else works <laughs> yeah. as cheap as he does, so... Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. and uh, they do have some pretty good ideas on something. Yeah, he's pretty handy <laughs> around, but every time he's, well, you don't like it, you're going to have to fire me, and I'm yeah. firing you. Um, so, uh, I guess, tell me again what you did for school and how that all worked. Yeah, so I guess I graduated kind of high school, and then I went um, kind of more of a practical education, went to New Zealand, Australia for a year, and I worked on farms there. Uh, and then I came back and I did three years in Vermilion for agribusiness management and their crop tech program. And then I went down to Wisconsin at Lakeshore Technical College. And I did a, a one-year uh, technical diploma there uh, in dairy herd management. And that was where you got to go on farms with... Yeah, that's where we were on farms with a lot of different people. We were on a couple hundred farms over that year. Like there was three to five farms a week just through the program. Plus we just toured on our own to other farms that other classmates were working on and stuff. And... Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was really good. A lot of farms there, right? Like, yeah. And uh, 10,000 or something, right? I think at the time there was 12,000 in Wisconsin. And Crazy. 
just the the variety and the amount of stuff that you get to see and that was that was real worthwhile and then I came back to the farm after that and that was 2012 I believe I was back full time so and those were the years where we got lots of increases and yeah it started, years after that I guess started a couple years after so we timed it pretty good because we kind of expanded in 2014 and that's kind of when we bought a bunch of quota and then quota increases started after that so right that helped a lot but so you were still in high school, I guess, when you guys had, um, well, I'll let you tell the story of your barns and, and what happened. There. No, that was after I, I came home. So the barns oh. clapped in 2014, so I've been home two years. That was actually six weeks after we bought the quota to expand, the barns came down. Um, right. So then we went six months without milking and, like, uh, amazing support from the dairy community in, in central Alberta. Like, there was five other farms that helped milk our cows for six months. Um, and, I mean, without their support and the support of the local community, we wouldn't be farming anymore because, yeah. like, uh, the insurance didn't cover really anything other than, you know, some, some lost cows, but the, the building, none of it. And it's just snow that... It yeah, it was just crazy. snow load and a bit of wind that kind of knocked it over. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I mean... I, you guys lose any cows? Or? Yeah, yeah. So we lost... Uh, I think there is about 18 cows and 12 calves a day of, and then a bunch more that either lost because of abortions or injuries and didn't breed back or stress. And yeah. so I think we probably replaced two thirds of the herd in, in the year, year and a half after the collapse, just, um, cause I know when we started milking again, we were milking about 75% two year olds. So we're just starting to get, you know, uh, up back to a mature herd again. Um, you know, cause it's hard to get production out of straight two year olds. So yeah, that's, I, I can speak to that if you'd yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, so no, it's I. It's nice to actually have some you know third, fourth, fifth lactation cows back in the barn again. And, yeah. Um, yeah, your cows look good. Yeah. I mean, you guys uh, classify some and. Yeah, everything is uh, is registered and classified, and uh, all our own replacements and stuff. Like I said, I, I yeah. like playing with that a little bit more than Dad. Like, no desire to to show or anything. I just like having nice cows when I get to the barn. I figure for the amount of time I spend looking at them, I want them to look alright. <laughs> yeah, if you pay a few extra dollars for that straw and yeah and I, I still think you know good genetics is one of the cheapest improvements you can make on your herd for yeah um for sure yeah yeah huh and so where's the farm going to now what's your kind of goals for the the future yeah um i i don't ever want to milk too many cows i'm kind of happy in 100 maybe up to 150 range at some point but yeah. i i still like working with the cows yeah i don't ever really want to manage people like having a few employees is nice but i still want to be yeah. be there working with the cows that's part of what i enjoy um so that's that's kind of like sit where we're at and maybe maybe add a few more you know make some changes to improve management like uh, right now like we all run one group and so build maybe a, a dry cow area a little cramps so and build a bigger dry cow area and use the the current dry cow area as like a, a post fresh pen so they could be oh, in there yeah. for the first month um Stuff like that uh, is kind of more the direction I'm leaning and, mm -hmm. you know, expand a little bit maybe, but mostly just be able to improve and, mm -hmm. you know, get more out of what we, we're currently having, more efficient. Yeah. So you were saying before that you, you, um, you, your heat detection is just visual and stuff like that. Yeah. So you do that in the morning or how do you? Uh, uh, I mean, I, I'm in the barn enough that I just kind of do it when I'm in the barn, like right. with milking three times a day and me being there for most of the milkings, you're... Yeah. you're in there those three times and then whenever you're walking through doing any you know breeding or if you have a fresh cow to check or treat like yeah. i'm still probably in the barn six to eight hours a day including what and 
and then other stuff outside. So you and I right. walk through and, you know, you're coming through off enough that I, I catch a lot of it. And then if I'm not catching heat on them, I'll sink them. But I mean, I am looking at a heat detection system is something I would like to put in in the yeah. next year or two. So what's your uh, protocol right now? Like the, you, you breed on activity right now or, or yeah. do you do program first or? Uh, if I'm seeing regular heats on them coming up, I won't program them and I'll just mm-hmm. kind of mark down the heats and watch for them. Mm-hmm. If I haven't really been seeing heats by that 50, 55 days, I'll start one on a program. Okay. Yeah. And what's your results like? Have you seen any like uh, improvements or? Yeah. I mean, like we had a little bit of a drop after because we did have the heat time in and that kind of had, right. had died or had, you know, just got old. Um, so then we kind of had to readjust. You got used to having a heat time where you weren't actually looking yeah. as much for heat. So yeah. there was a little bit of a lag to get to the point of actually starting to do better visual heat detection again. Yeah. Um, but no, we're running pretty good. I think we run kind of, we've dropped off a little bit. We're kind of that 23% preg rate hmm. range. Um, conception's coming up. Like we've started to run 40, 50% conception. Nice. Um, but, you know, we're still still struggling with some of the, the visual heat. We're not catching as many as we should be. Yeah. Um, so, like, so that's why I'd like to put in that uh, a heat detection system, and I think that would help quite a bit because our natural heat conception is kind of 5 to 8% higher than our, our programmed readings. Right. So. Yeah. What else is new on the farm? Yeah. Yeah. Um, not a whole lot really actually the last couple of years have been kind of nice like we did our lagoon and our heifer barn and we've kind of been avoiding any major projects and aside from else. like investing in elk protection well yeah we do have like i mean <laughs> we lose a lot of feed to elk every year so putting up panels for that and um, like we bag everything now but we might look at going back to pits because the pit's a little easier to keep elk off of because um, they do wreck so, so you you have ag bags for your oat silage, and then your yeah. so your, your dry your bales your yeah. hay bales are in in plastic as well. Yeah. So usually, okay. like our first cut uh, haylage lately, we, we've been uh, if we can, we'll get it into a pit. Um, if we can't, we'll wrap it. Just depends on like moisture. If we get too wet, and we can only get one field done. And, you know, if you can only get thirty acres, then you don't want to put a bunch of layers in your pit. So then we'll bale and wrap it. Right. If we've got nice weather, then we'll try and get it into a pit. Um, like we figure we can do, you know, a couple hundred acres and get it into a pit, then we'll, we'll go for it. And then usually second cut, we try and bale and wrap everything. Um, and like then, as yeah, silage bales? As silage bales, yeah. Oh, okay. And then we do, we do, I do try and keep our uh, close up pen and our heifers up until they're uh, confirmed pregnant on dry hay. Okay. So that yeah. I do try and do dry hay whenever we get the weather, but that's usually second, second cut that like we don't get. We average two and a half cuts a year. So sometimes we'll get a third cut, sometimes we won't. Huh. Yeah, uh, it just depends on the year and how early we can get on and how late because a lot of years we'll have snow by the first, second week of September. We'll start getting heavier dumps of snow again and like we, we've we got frost usually till the beginning of June. Yeah, right. So so, so explain explain to people whereabouts you are. Like um, you're not yeah. south of Edmonton really. So, you know, hour straight west to Red Deer, Lacombe. Yeah, right. Um, so kind of right up on the foothills of the, the Rockies there. So yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, elevation, like I was saying earlier, like we're kind of in that 85 frost-free days, 1,400 heat units. Yeah, right. Um, so, and you've seen snow like 12 months a year? We've seen snow every month of the year here. Like <laughs> July and August, it's rare. Every other month, it's pretty normal. <laughs> so, that's so like June is, is a little bit more iffy, but just about every year in September and May, we'll have snow for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, like we got married at the beginning of September and we 
got married on the Saturday, and by Tuesday the lawn was covered in eight inches of snow. <laughs> so uh, it usually melts. Like it doesn't usually stay on the ground till yeah. mid to late October. Yeah, which is a plus. It's uh, so like you're kind of know that's when you're done. Like you might start get some manure hauled when it melts or get some disking or stuff done but you have to have like i try to have everything i need off by the first week of september because otherwise there's no guarantees so you have your lagoon for liquid manure yep and then how do you haul it or yeah so we have our own uh liquid manure wagon and pumps we do all our own liquid manure hauling okay um same thing with our solid last year we did have a company come in for the first time haul some of our solids okay um just because it'd been so wet we hadn't got on there we kind of had three years built up there where we hadn't been able to drive on the fields oh wow so they kind of came in just because they can move so much more than we can yeah um and then yeah we do most of our own field work with the exception being the oats we get custom done and bagged but we do all right. our own silage and baleage and dry hay right and then that that dry manure goes on your your oat silage yeah yeah any of our cultivated acres will try right. to spread it on there spring and fall yeah right i so, guess you you cultivate everything because it's so yeah, wet right yeah we just we we have to otherwise we can't get anything dry enough to drive on it so yeah you're not as progressive as the us no no till people no no we don't have that <laughs> option so no till would be like whatever put it in grass and don't try a annual thing because it's yeah. just it's just too wet yeah that's uh moisture is not our problem talk about your um excessive your uh role as delegate and how did you get involved with Alberta Milk? Yeah, so I guess that's I've been a delegate for a year and a half-ish now. Um, had a few people ask me, and I, you know, I was always kind of interested, but um, until like after the barn collapse stuff, we were just kind of getting everything back in order, and finally I had the time again, and I wasn't in ownership till about three years ago. Um, okay, so, yeah. I mean, another important qualification. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a few people ask me, and it's always something I've been interested in. Like, I, I like... You know, being able to help move the industry forward and being able in, involved in that kind of thing. Um, I mean, timing-wise, a little interesting. Like, I got elected, and a couple months later, boom, COVID hit. So, what yeah. normal delegate roles are, I don't know because I've just kind of <laughs> live in the life of a COVID delegate and Zoom calls. And yeah, but no, I, it's good. Like, I'm on the research committee and on a delegate. I really, I do enjoy it. Um, I mean, with COVID, it's been a little bit more challenging, but. Still, uh, yeah, still for the most part, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it and yeah. hopefully everybody else is happy with me. Nobody's yelled at me yet. So that's, <laughs> you know, not too often anyways. Yeah, no, I've, I've just been, um, surprised with the, the quality of people that are involved yeah. in the industry and yeah. like delegates too, like just some incredibly talented people. I just feel, feel a little bit like yeah. embarrassed some, sometimes, no, you know, I don't. just like, I, th- I feel like I'm made to shovel manure and now I'm like, you know, sitting with these people that are talking about policy and governance structure. And I still feel like that most days, but I mean, it's only been a year and a half, but you figure a lot of these guys have been doing it for 15 years or 10 years. Yeah. Like, even the amount I've learned in the last year and a half is, is phenomenal. And the amount that I've progressed in, in my ability to, to do anything, right? And you'll get there, right? So as long as you're willing to put the effort in and, and try and work for the industry, like the, the opportunities are there to learn and like so we do even like the, the producers aren't delegates like we have a lot of extremely knowledgeable and progressive producers in Alberta yeah like there's a lot of talent and a lot of knowledge there um, across all 500 producers um, you know everybody's got a lot to, to bring in there's a lot of you know different viewpoints mm-hmm. but everything helps strengthen right like yeah somebody's always got something positive they can contribute and 
Yeah, I find that too. Like there's um there's some controversial voices or some people that seem to be contrarian, you know, that like to speak up, but I always find value in in what they bring to the table at, at some point too. Yeah. Because they they kind of bring different ideas at the same time while being semi annoying. I agree. Like even if you, but even if you don't uh like follow their viewpoint or end up agreeing yeah. with them, they make you think about it. They give yeah, you a different exactly perspective right. to look yeah. at and you may not end up agreeing with them, but at least they brought it up and you, you can kind of look at it from that point of view and, you know, you see that there's different viewpoints out there yeah. and it may make even, even if it makes a couple little changes to what you were looking at, but they're positive changes. Yeah. You know, you might be like, okay, 95% of what you said, I don't agree with, but that 5% over there, we might be able to, to incorporate in it and it does make the industry better, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so you're on the research committee? Yeah, just the research committee, which is busy enough. Um, so what do you do there? Uh, so we just kind of, like all the research funding proposals will come in. So that research checkoff on your milk check, we kind of evaluate all the proposals and decide which one is going to have the biggest benefit to producers at a farm level. Put it on um, red or black? Like that's what you do with the research money? Yeah, kind of just gamble it away and just, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and it's, so we have to see merit. Um to the industry because I mean it's producers that are paying for it so if it just benefits you know some other company or something like the, the benefit has to be able to be seen at a farm level right right like if farmers are going to put the money in you need to see a benefit at a farm level otherwise we try not to push that research project through yeah so like a project that would benefit let's say 60% beef but 40% dairy yeah so and, and, and you just to... fund it accordingly right like you just say you know what we, we, we don't fund every project at the same level because they all come with different levels. So if we don't, if we, if they come and say, Hey, we want X amount of dollars, we're like, well, we only see so much value to the dairy industry. Right. We're only going to give you so much money and you have to find the rest somewhere else. Right. Like it's almost, it's, I haven't seen us fully fund a project or maybe one project in the year and a half I've seen on there. Other than that, like out of the, you know, 20 or 30 projects, everything like we fund maybe 20, 25% at the high end. Because um, it's Western Milk Pool, like fil- uh, this, this is just provinces. Alberta Milk, but other oh. other like other provinces or like the the provincial government or the beef industry right. or you know if there's multiple benefit like some of it's like you know say we're studying some barley varieties and there's some benefit to the dairy for digestibility side on a barley variety, but the barley growers association is also going to benefit. Right. They might kick in some money because they pay for some research too. Yeah. So a lot of it's partnerships across all of ag and. It's kind of trying to leverage and get the most out of the dollars we have to get the most research done, right? Yeah. So how do you how do you quantify your results then? How do you know that it's a money well spent? And you know that's kind of the tougher part. Like you can look at it and like some projects go through and they say that the results they find are this actually won't work. Right. So you're like, okay, well there was no actual. I mean, now we know that doesn't work, and that's yeah. the only benefit we got out of it, right? <laughs> right. I, I mean, and you try and limit that as much as possible, but some of it's you know. It's it's the potential if for the so if the research succeeds, what's the potential benefit to the industry? Yeah. So you say, hey, you know what? If this if this works, the benefit's going to be massive, yeah. but the chance of it succeeding is small. So we're only going to give this much of money. Where if the benefit is huge and the chance of success is huge, then you fund it a little higher. Yeah, yeah, right. So that's kind of how we we rate it. And then like the researchers do report back to us, like some of us at the dairy seminar or you know, other research papers, like there is qualifications on it. Like it has to get published. It has to, Oh, okay. Um, so they can't just take the money and run. Like they do actually yeah. have to show up with, there is, you know, qualification by like, here's what we need to see out of this project. And they do report back to us saying, here's what we found. Here's what happened. 
Um, and then a lot of that, like I said, is reported at places like the Western Canadian Dairy Seminar or uh, articles in some dairy magazines, um, right. stuff like that. So the information also has to get back to producers because even though it'll benefit you on the farm, if you never hear about it, it's kind of useless. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So d- would you deal with um, like WDREC or whatever it's called? So that's a separate committee off of the research committee. So REAC is the Alberta Milk Research Committee. So Research and Extension Committee is okay. the acronym for the Alberta Milk. WDREC is all of the Western provinces. Okay. So that's kind of another subcommittee um, where Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba sit on it. Um, Manitoba so- twice? Or BC. 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 So yeah. all four Western yeah. provinces have, have representation on that one. Yeah. And it is a research-driven again, but that's more a cooperative. Because we do cooperate with some of the provinces and other stuff. Like they say, hey, yeah. we've had this proposal sent to us. We think it'll benefit you guys too. We're like, okay, we'll put a little bit of money towards it. And they're like, we'll put a little bit of money towards it. So we do yeah. cooperate just on a, a committee level with some of the other provinces. But WDREC is the, the, the engine that they're just kind of developing to drive that. So it's not just like... You know, us in Saskatchewan talking or whatever, it's all of four Western provinces, and then maybe you can leverage your research dollars a little better. Right, yeah. Um, because there's no point in, like, say we're doing a, a lameness research project on digital dermatitis, and Saskatchewan's doing one, and Manitoba's doing one, yeah, and they're right. all pretty much the same project. We might as well just do one if they're looking for the same thing. Yeah. Right, just make it a better project. You run one, it's a little cheaper, and you can maybe make a better study for less money than we would be putting in. Yeah. So like a lot of our efforts lately, I've been focused on doing a lot more stuff that way. Right? Yeah. Uh, so moving more and more to Western Millpool um, for, for research, for transportation. I, I think that's a trend that's just going to keep going. And it, it, it is a good thing. Like just the amount of efficiencies and the savings, like there's no point in all of us having a transportation person on staff. Right. When transportation is already managed at a Western Milk Pool level. Same thing with research, right? Right. Um, yeah. So there, there's a lot of efficiencies to be found there. You, you do give up some, like, this is Alberta Milk and we're all about Alberta, but as a yeah. Western Milk Pool, if we work together, in the end, you're going to be stronger. Yeah. So, right. I mean, this is, like, especially... Um, uh, it's it's going to impact you, especially because, I mean, you deal with stuff that a lot of other Alberta producers don't deal with. Like, I mean, the elk, the snow 12 months a year, Yeah. right? So, like, if we move to, um, uh, you know, a, a different governance structure, let's say in 5, 10 years, you know, where you don't even know your local reps anymore, it's all managed at a Western Milk Pool level, how is that going to affect the and way you farm? You're never... I don't think it'll affect the way you farm a whole lot. I mean, you're ne- just because of the provincial regulations, you're still going to have to have a provincial board. There's no getting around that. Um, but yeah, as far as the way of farm, like I, I still think it'll benefit, like there's still going to be some efficiencies, um, that, that'll outweigh some of the negatives. Like I think we're a small enough pool of producers now, like when Alberta milk was formed, we were over a thousand producers. Now we're half that. Hmm. Right. So the amount of producers out there, I, I feel like you should still, if you show up to meetings and stuff, you should still have a familiar face to your, your provincial reps because there's a lot less of us per person now. So you, you should still know right. who's who's there, right? Like, if you even put in a small effort to show up to meetings and stuff, you'll know who to go talk to. And we're small enough and everybody's approachable enough that I think yeah. you'll be able to go up to them and, and know. Um, what do you think about the Zoom meetings? Like, we just had our spring producer meetings. Well, I mean, if you say Zoom meetings, you see me twitch. And, um, <laughs> they, they work. They're not as nice as in-person meetings, and they're a lot better than they were a year and a half ago. 
Um, people have learned how to use Zoom now, but a year and a half ago, it was like to go through two <laughs> topics took you like three hours because microphones weren't unmuting and yeah. you know nobody really knew what was going on. So they run a lot more efficiently now, and I think I'd like to see some of them going forward when it's just for like quick updates. Yeah. Um, because then you don't need to travel, right? It's easy to say, hey. But for important stuff like you know some of the workshops or some of the 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 more in-depth meetings, it, it's a lot nicer to be in person because, I mean, like you're a new delegate. This is the first time I've met you and you've been elected for, what, six months? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it, it kind of makes, like, and even the first year, like, same thing. Like, I got to know a couple guys for the first couple months, but that was the first time I'd met some of these guys. Like, some, I knew a lot of the central reps, but, like, some of the northern ones and none yeah. of the southern ones I didn't really know. Yeah. Right? So, you, it's a little different when you're trying to have a conversation with somebody that you only ever met over Zoom. Yeah. Um, but it, it has its place and it, it's worked, but it would be nice to get to in-person meetings again. Yeah. But uh, do you think there's a larger inclusion of producers or a potential for a larger inclusion of producers with zoom? Like, you know, people that weren't going to come to the meeting cause they had to yeah, travel. I think, I think you maybe see some hybrids where you have like, you have somebody videoing and broadcasting yeah, live or right. something and just have someone monitor a chat. Like, I think there's room for that for guys who can't get off the farm, like for the, say the AGM yeah. in the fall. Right, yeah. you want to be part of that. You can click in, you watch it, and you can type in your questions, but you can't get off the and farm. And vote, or you know, something like that. Yeah, right? you figured out whatever you need to do, right? Like that—that's a doable thing. But um, just for some of the the social, and I, I mean, you, you have a better discussion in person because over Zoom, Always, yeah, over Zoom, you get the minimum done. Like you get through your agenda, you get what you need done. But it's harder to have any kind of a side discussion at like a coffee break or after. Yeah. Um, I mean that yeah yeah it people always say that and like a lot of business does get done you know at coffee time in between yeah. you know sessions at the meeting yeah. or or you know you have a few beers afterward type of thing yeah. you know a lot of business does get done that way and too. usually it's not even it's official business it's more just uh you know getting an exchange of things. ideas and like yeah. at the AGM like if there's even 100 150 producers there just you know, getting to talk to somebody you'd never see before and like, oh, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, and you can always pick up, learn something from somebody, talk to them, or you, you don't get that off of Zoom because you get yeah. through, here's the agenda, here's the financial statement, good, see you later, click, we're gone. Yeah. Right? So it, it gets the official business done, but yeah. the unofficial learning doesn't really happen. Mm-hmm. So like I said, it, it's functional and it has its place in smaller quantities, but for... For some stuff, I can see either like a hybrid form or in person is. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, for quick updates for like a half hour thing, like, hey, here's what's going on with mm-hmm. whatever, you can have a quick meeting. Um, yeah. It, it, it'll be nice. And I, I think we'll see, you'll see it used going forward where if we're going to have a one hour meeting, there's no point in everybody driving to Edmonton. Yeah. Right. But if it's actually somewhere it's going to be a full day thing, then maybe it's worth the trip. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. Like I said, it's been an interesting year and a half. Um, but Yeah, learn anything new? Or? Yeah, a lot. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I did get the chance to go to Montreal for that Future Leader Development Conference, which is more kind of government training and stuff, which right. usually they send someone to every year, but this year kind of got canceled, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that was good. And, and I mean, just so much about governance, the way things actually work, like the management behind it, like the... The amount of work that, especially like, you know, staff and, you know, as a delegate, I didn't think, I mean, I, there's, I knew it was going to be work, but it was, it was a little bit more than I was expecting. And maybe some of that was COVID, like you just couldn't have the in-person meetings. 
so much stuff changed because everything was busy. You're like trying to say, hey, what are we doing with this? What's going on with that? Like, you know. You mean you're, with your role as a delegate? Yeah. You work? Right? Okay. It, and and something like everyone says, well, this isn't normal. This isn't this is kind of the same level you've had because there's been so many changes so right. often that you're you're just a lot busier. But right. Yeah. It, it's been good. So you, you learn a lot of the behind the scenes stuff and yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I wouldn't change it, but it's you know a lot on governance management. You know, mm-hmm. there's I mean some politics as much as you prefer there wasn't. There's always politics involved Mm -hmm. so but not much and for the most part even with you know differentiating opinions everybody's pretty respectful and pretty good to get along with yeah i mean we're all we're all our own business owners and we're all very passionate about this industry and sometimes that passion comes through and people get a little heated but it's usually pretty respectful and you know you have your discussion you get your opinion out and you can just sit down and talk after once it's done it's done and you move on, right? Like nobody really yeah. holds a grudge because we're all there for the same reason. We want a stronger dairy industry in Alberta, Western Canada, and Canada in general. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually, it's kind of a miracle that we can all kind of get along and make it work because there's like a thousand other different industries yeah. out there that, you know, don't have yeah the, and the ability to lobby government or, or all the other stuff that we, we do as a, as a group, right? No, and it, like we do work together a lot. And I mean, there's definitely some times where, you know, we're stuck in our ways and we don't like change. Like, you know, some places changing coffee time by 20 minutes is pretty much treason. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it changes, changes inevitable and it's, it's, it's coming, but you know, you know, it's going to cause some tension and change yeah. doesn't always benefit every single person, but it has to benefit the industry as a whole. Right. Yeah. So, so we were talking before about, uh, one of the changes that you think we might see is, um, the pro action modules or whatever. So what do you think the next module will be? I, I kind of asked comically. I didn't think there would ever be another module now yeah. into environment. But. It's one of those, I don't think it'll be maybe another whole module coming up. And I don't know. I'm not on any pro action committees. I just, oh, I, I, yeah. you know, so it's, we'll just, we'll see. Move Like you might start looking, you know, maybe we look at something like, you know, carbon neutrality or, you know, but these are all years down the road and we, we need to have a base point to see like where we're starting. Right. Like, and I think it's just, it'll be just tweaking, like, you know, making it more consumer aware, um, looking at maybe, you know, you look at tighter lameness restrictions, tighter, you know, uh, just move yeah. stuff up, just, um, but you made yeah. a good point. Like a lot of these changes that we make to ProAction, they're huge, um, marketing, you know, yeah. that we can gain. Right. And that's it. Right. Like, I mean, it, some of it, most guys are doing a good job on farm and it's just the extra paperwork, which sucks. Nobody likes doing extra paperwork. Yeah. Right, like you do it, but you can see the benefit because if you can guarantee that to consumers and keep them buying our product, because right now it's younger people that aren't buying milk, um, and some of their big concerns are animal welfare and environmental stability. So we need to be able to prove that we're doing a good job, and that proof has to come through paperwork and third-party inspections, or they're not going to believe you. So it sucks. It's insane. It's like we live but in two different worlds. It but. is right, and it sucks, but it's also essential. Right, because if we don't do it, somebody's going to make us do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's. I mean, a pro action. It's it's a it's a great program. Um, it, it's moving in the right direction. As much as you know, we've all struggled with some of the extra the workload. With really no, you don't really see it on your pay stub every month. But I think it just keeps the industry growing. Uh, you'll see. You know, potentially see 
you know, the milk sales growth, which is your quota increases and stuff like that. Like right. it's, it, it's more long-term and you know, you might not even see it, but you might see stagnant sales, but you won't see a decline where you could have otherwise. Right. Like, right. Um, so it's, it's one of those, it's really hard to see the actual dollar figures coming in. But I think if we didn't have it, you definitely see a negative effect. Yeah. I Either now so or a year or two from now. Right. Like, or whatever, like it's, uh, yeah. It's good to have it. Good yeah. to have it there for marketing purposes. Yeah. I, I would agree. Yeah. So, and even, you know, just, it, it keeps everybody doing a, a good job. Like every, most guys are doing a great job anyways, but it's just a way to go to people and say, Hey, we yeah. are doing a good job, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, I mean, a lot of the rules come about in a way that we would rather not have them come about. Yeah. I mean, you know, somebody right. didn't, you know, feed his cows for 10 days and then, you know, we had to make a rule. So, and you know, you have to feed yeah. your cows, right? Otherwise you're not going to be. And I mean, you see, it doesn't take much to blow up on social media. Like now it might've been an article 30 years ago, it might've been an article in your local newspaper and someone was upset with that guy, but now the entire country knows in a matter of minutes. Yeah. That's just an right? example. I, I don't yeah. know of anyone. that did No, that I don't either. Cow. But it, it's like I said, it's one of those that, you know, it, it just takes one guy for yeah. everybody in the country to know by the end of the day. Yeah. Right. It's one, you know, out of 10,000 farmers, if, if one guy screws up and gets on the news somewhere, we're all in trouble. Yeah. Right. Because the problem is today, everybody kind of gets painted with one brush. Yeah. It's uh. so it's, speaking it's, of being painted with one brush, what do you think about the butter, butter scandal? Yeah. I mean, some of that kind of news coming. Like, I mean, it's not really on butter hardness anymore. It's about, you know, the environmental practices of the palm industry in Malaysia, because a lot of people have switched to butter because they're trying to avoid palm oil. Hmm. And now to find out that we're feeding palm fat to cow, even though it's not palm oil, it still is a byproduct of the palm industry. And you can't really deny that. So I, I think you're going to have to look, we might end up having to switch to, you know, a certified sustainable palm fat or, or something along those lines hmm. is coming. Um, because, I, yeah, I, I don't think it really links up to butter hardness so much, but I, I don't think that's the main issue anymore. It's, it's more right. the environmental side of things because, yeah. So let's just say um, it gets disproven that there's a link between palm fat usage and dairy rations and butter hardness. Then you think the focus will shift to... I think the focus is already shifting. Huh. I, I think if it came out and they said, you know, butter hardness isn't really associated with palm oil... You would still see a few people talking about it, but I think the main the main outrage is coming from people don't like the palm industry itself. So it's more because or it's negative effects. It's on negative the, the palm industry. And, yeah, so the palm industry has a very negative environmental impact, mm-hmm. and even as buying a byproduct of palm oil production, they view it as supporting the palm industry. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's where we're going with it. Um, and I think that's the main issue we're going to have to combat. I, I, I really do think that even if it's linked to butter hardness and they say, Hey, you know what? doesn't have anything to do with hard butter. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not going to go away as fast. Like the media attention has dropped on it a lot, mm-hmm. but I, I still think we're going to end up going to, um, some form just, you know, it's the same thing. You, every time somebody screams, you can't cancel everything. But if we can get to the point where there is enough palm fat coming off, certified sustainable plantations and stuff you know maybe you look at that and you have to pay a slight premium for it or something like that like it's not going to go away completely it might fade a little bit but 
you know, those are the changes I see more happening. Like instead of canceling palm fat, we have to prove that we're getting it from places that are mm -hmm. doing a good job of managing their palm plantations. So that uh, that's going to apply to everything we put in a dairy ration from now on, I would imagine, right? So, to, a, to a point, but I think palm has already have such a negative image. Um, so I think you're dealing with an industry that has been fighting a negative environmental image and a lot of outrage from certain groups for a lot of years. Hmm. Where, you know, like something like, you know, barley production or canola production doesn't have that stigma behind it. Right. Right. So there isn't like, okay, you're growing a plant. Like they might say, oh, well, you know, there's already people saying, hey, well, it should all be organic. That's where the organic dairies are getting it from. But I don't see a huge spinoff to other things unless there's other things in a ration that are already coming from industry and i don't i can't think of any no, yeah i know but we didn't think of palm oil before there, too, there like. was some palm like new zealand got hit with it 2015 2016 they had mm. the same kind of problem where um, people came after them for using palm uh, i think they were they were feeding higher percentages of it and stuff but um there there was some indication that this was coming down the pipeline from an environmental issue and this was just kind of the mat, match that lit everything on fire the very unlikely match. I mean, it was right. Like it would it, seem nobody, nobody seen it coming. Like you said, nobody kind of expect, expected it to blow up as fast as it did or, but, or have it correlated with butter. Yeah. Hardness. So, I mean, it, but if you've done, there was inklings that it was coming that there was issues surrounding it from other countries already. Like we hadn't seen this in North America, but there was countries that have had palm fat targeted for its environmental reasons before. Hmm. So it was, it was, like I said, it was something that was kind of on the back burner and it was kind of there, like maybe at some point we'll need to look at this and all of a sudden it just exploded through this hard butter thing. But the hard butter kind of let everybody know, oh, there is palm byproducts going into dairy rations. And there was yeah. a lot of misconception on the internet, like we're putting palm oil into butter, we're putting palm oil into it's rations. It's just palm oil, there's nothing else. And it, yeah, and it, so, <laughs> and it was, you know, it's... So there was a lot of misconception there as so palm fat, but there was, there was inklings that there could have been a potential problem there, but there's also 50 things like that on the back burner that could potentially blow up on us. So how do you pick which one's going to blow up this week? Right. It really depends on what somebody gets mad at. What, like, are, what are the other 49 I mean, things? But like, you know, one is tie stalls. There's a lot of negative pressure around tie stalls. And even if you can prove that animal welfare is okay in a tie stall, Mm -hmm. It's a public perception image, mm -hmm. right? Like that's something that's sitting there and could go either way, mm -hmm. right? Like we don't have a lot of tie stalls in Western Canada and I'm not saying that there's animal welfare concerns in tie stalls, but it's a public perception image of somebody in the city sees a cow that's always tied and mm -hmm. never moves, right? That's what they perceive. But, but that's, yeah. and it's, it's just a perceived problem, yeah. right? And sometimes a perceived problem is more of a problem than an actual problem because there's no solution. Yeah. Because if someone says, hey, your haystack's on fire, you go and put it out, yeah. right? If someone says, hey, you know, your haystack might be on fire, fire tomorrow, you can sit there and watch it, but you don't <laughs> actually know what's going to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. Uh, or there's, so, you know, that that's one that I think is going gonna, is gonna to come up and it, it has the potential, it could sit there for years and nothing happens mm -hmm. or something could blow it up just like this, this palm thing, right? Because mm -hmm. um, there is a lot, like there's already countries in Europe where tie soles are illegal. Hmm. Like it, it's coming. Um, All the tie stalls that I've seen are are leading the way in animal welfare. Yeah, <laughs> like, like the, cows are and, and absolutely. Like I, I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that there's animal welfare concerns in tie stalls. It's just a perception image. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
and the same thing, like it's hard to go to an uneducated consumer, um, that a lot of them are, are good and they're, they're trying to learn, but it's hard to explain to them that having a cow tied up mm -hmm. is a good thing. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, there's still this perception of cows out in green pasture and stuff. Like even in a freestall, sometimes it's hard to say your cows are always on concrete, but just that visual of the chain from their neck to a, mm -hmm. a hitch is people just stop listening after that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that's one that, that could potentially be coming, um, and just other little issues like that that are, you know, they're there. Mm -hmm. And there's not actually a problem there, but people could get mad enough at, and blow it up. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so so, so it, it kind of pays to be proactive on yeah. a lot of this stuff, and thus we have proaction, I yeah. guess, for so, a lot of the issues. Yeah. Challenges, I yeah. should say, not issues. Yeah, it's, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it's there's always little things that we're going to be working on, right? Like, yeah, that's uh, that's it's yeah, constantly working to to move the industry forward, and sometimes change sucks. Yeah, it's also essential because I mean, my dad always said to said I couldn't farm like Grandpa, and you can't farm like me because it just doesn't work anymore. You know, you you need to evolve and and move with that's with true. things. Cause I mean, if I tried to farm like grandpa did and, you know, 15 cows and milk them, by, know, hand. Milk them by hand with, you know, just whatever hay you could grow and not really having a, a really good nutritional side, like it worked back then, but you know, 18 liters, 15 liters was a really good cow in the sixties when he started. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I was trying to milk 15 cows at 15 liters a cow, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't be eating. Right. So yeah. you constantly need, need to grow and, and change. Right. And you know, you know, some of the most dangerous words in the English language are, well, that's how we've always done it. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's, uh... Yeah. I hear you. Well, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming out. Really appreciate so. the barn tour and looking at all your your beautiful yeah, cows. well, if you're ever out here... You got a really nice herd. What's your um, prefix? Similinks. Okay. How do you say your last name? Similink? Similink. Yeah. Cool. So it's just last name with an S, so... Cool. Well, yeah. thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Faraway Farm Boy podcast, episode number 29 with Devin Similink of Similink Farms. Join me again next week.